You know what? Uh, radical life extension, for sure. And it's very difficult to talk to anybody about that these days without getting some kind of almost hysterical reaction in return. Uh, it's not an idea that is very generally uh, publicly accepted. It's You're considered selfish, first and foremost. Grossly negligent in terms of what this might mean to the environment, what it might mean to overpopulation and, and the, you know, the destruction and the, uh, the taking in of too many resources and so on. But I think that at the same time, this has to be taken has to be considered, you know, along with other technologies and other developments that will happen, you know, in tandem with it. So, you know, in a, in a world where we've cured aging, let's be honest, in a world where we've, we've cured aging, I think we're going to be able to, to cure a lot of other of our, of our social and cultural and political ills. And that, you know, uh, I've, never, I've never been worried about overpopulation in terms of our elbow room. Like we actually have a small footprint as, as physical individuals. Where our footprints get large is, you know, uh, everyone's demanding first world standards. The meat-obsessed culture, the, the amount of energy we sh we, sh we require. But if we can man find ways to kind of like squeeze all of these things down, such that our footprint, you know, uh, shrinks likewise, then I just, there's no reason to believe. You know, I think there's no ethical, moral, religious, you know, reason to you know say that we 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 shouldn't strive to uh, you know extend our lives to an indefinite degree. So so that one definitely um, is exciting to me. I think death sucks, and I think that uh, the sooner we get rid of it, the better. Today's episode is brought to you guys by Team Viewer. In the age of remote work, TeamViewer helps the world stay connected and productive. It's the leading connectivity platform for dispersed teams worldwide. Whether via your computer or mobile, teams can stay connected, secure video, voice, chat, screen share, and more. And on top of that, they're revolutionizing remote support with augmented reality and IoT solutions to help companies solve real-world issues beyond the screen. So if you've got a distributed team or you're working with distributed clients, TeamViewer is absolutely a must. And you guys, for a limited time, can check out a free trial. If you go to teamviewer.com slash disruptors, that's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. Again, teamviewer.com slash disruptors. You can sign up for a free trial. The company that combines it all into one for remote teams everywhere to increase productivity in this age of COVID when we're all working from home. We can't escape, can't get into the office. We might as well at least feel together. TeamViewer.com slash disruptors for more details and to sign up for the free trial. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. You guys are in for a good one today. We're going big, we're not going home. We're talking existential risk, mutually assured destruction, and much, much more. Today we've got George Dvorsky on the program. He's a Canadian futurist, sci-fi writer, and ethicist who's written extensively about the impacts of cutting-edge science and technology, particularly on human performance. He's also a senior staff writer at Gizmodo and contributes regularly to io9, where he writes about science, culture, and futurism. George is a founding member of the Institute of Ethics and Emerging Technologies, Chair of the Board and Founder and Director for Rights of the Non-Humans Persons Program, and the Co-Founder and President of the Toronto Transhumanist Association. He served on the Board of Directors for Humanity Plus, and his work's been featured in publications like The Guardian, BBC, CBC, Forbes, The New York Times, and many, many more. In today's episode, we discuss how life extension and longevity affects society and the technologies for ending aging, the dangers of AI and the problems with containment, why consciousness is such a hard problem and what it means for all of us, how George's study of the past influences his views of the future, why mutually assured destruction could become a thing again, a good thing at that, 
and the reason why AI is harder to regulate than it seems. This is an awesome interview today. I hope you guys really enjoy this because George is a fascinating guy with a ton to add. At the very end, the interview cut out, so we ended up having to shorten the interview and just run it up to then. Till that point, it's an incredibly awesome interview, and I think one that you guys will get a lot of benefit out of. It's around 50 minutes long and a ton of fun, so I hope you guys enjoy this. If you do, please consider supporting us on Patreon, disruptors.fm slash Patreon. If you support us for $5 or more per month, you'll unlock access to almost weekly bonus episodes so you can have a little bit more of the disruptors right to your earbuds. And if $5 a month is too much, you can support us at any level if you're choosing on Patreon. If that's too much as well, then just consider sharing us with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. iTunes reviews are incredibly helpful in helping us reach more people in disruptor.fm slash iTunes. And now without further ado, I give you George Dvorsky. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So you have a you have a diverse background that seems to come from science, a little bit of fiction, probably a little bit of fantasy. What's your story? How did you become this guy? Yeah, it, and uh, it's uh, it's kind of a convoluted path. But I mean, many of our lives don't take a straight direction towards our our destinations or towards our goals. But it's all good. I think it really kind of uh, serves to make us who we are. My academic background uh, happens to be in virtually nothing that concerns me today. But that's not even entirely fair. Uh, I studied history at university, but uh, and even there, the the history that I that I studied had to deal with philosophy and political science. I was fascinated with 20th century uh, history, particularly the uh, the rise of uh, totalitarian thinking. So, and I was very very interested in the Soviet Union. But you know, on, and I also had an interest in the history of science. So I was interested to see the the progression of thought to understand what, where the breakthroughs were coming from and what led to certain lines of thinking. Uh, Darwin, in particular was hugely uh, fascinating to me. And just seeing how his ideas uh, spread or really didn't spread, unlike the ideas of Einstein and others, which really took off immediately and, and gained immediate traction. Uh, Einstein's or uh, Darwin's ideas have uh, taken much longer to take, ro- uh, take root. And it really has to do with, uh, I guess, the nature of what he was describing, which was the uh, human origins. And that has obviously a lot of metaphysical conflicts. But uh, after uh, university, as I like to joke now, I spent the you know the first first part of my uh, academic career looking backwards in time. I then kind of shifted my focus and started looking to the future. But uh, I the reason why I said earlier that you know we take all, all the all the baggage with us as we progress through life. I don't think that I would be you know half the uh, the futurist I am today if it wasn't for my uh, the history and my. Just the sense of linearity, the sense of human progression over time. That in order to be able to look forward, you have to be able to understand where we where we came from. And I think a lot of futurists actually lack this kind of uh, this this sense of historicity. Uh, that and 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 actually in, in in two different ways. One, it can it can make some individuals think that there that that there aren't uh, that the, that the possibilities aren't as profound as uh, as they actually are. Or alternately, that um, it's going to take. Uh, that is going to it's going to come too quickly or or too too slowly. So, or even just even non futures just fe- feeling without a sense of history, they may not even feel that that uh, uh, that a sense of change is even possible. And uh, I think really now, perhaps more than any other time, I think in my life, and it wasn't like this even five, ten, fifteen years ago when I first started getting involved in in futurism. Uh, is the is this weird presentism that has taken root? There's this sen- there's a sense right now of the that to this the current moment is somehow exceptional in human history, and, and, and that's that's far from the fact. Let's take the, the the president of the United States for example. I mean, the obviously I'm I mean I'm not a fan, but. Uh, 
uh, you know, I recognize that this is perhaps one of the more problematic presidents that the United States has had to endure. Yet at the same time, I, the, you know, the hearing the hysteria saying that this is the worst thing that's ever happened in the United States is like, yeah, you know, just that the, the times have never been darker for the United States. And like, well, you know, you don't have to go back too far in time to see that, you know, there are, you know, equally dark precedents, you know, whether it been the, the Nixon era and the Vietnam era, or even, you know, uh, what went on during the Second World War and how, how people struggled back then. I think that um, there's this kind of this this feeling of I don't know the stasis or this kind of like I said this presentism that people are having a hard time breaking out of this shell and looking perhaps to the to the future now and uh, thinking about different kinds of possibilities that there that progress can happen both technological social and cultural I'm perhaps straying a little bit away from uh, your initial question but if you're happy to have me continue um, uh, no straying uh, yeah. straying okay. is always good we're okay. here to stray so back to your initial question which was you know how did I get to where I am today. So yeah, uh, I back in around the year 2002 or so, I stumbled upon uh, the writings of Nick Bostrom, a philosopher at Oxford, uh, James Hughes, a sociologist, and a number of other thinkers, um, uh, David Pierce, for example. These individuals, uh, I guess, self-professed transhumanists, which was a word I'd never heard before. But when I started to become accustomed to the writing and learn about what they were saying, it was like, oh, yeah, this absolutely makes sense. Of course, we're going to do this. You know, of course, we're going to apply technologies to ourselves. We're going to change who we are. We're going to take the reins of evolution and mold ourselves into, you know, uh, whatever, you know, uh, whatever we desire. But but not even just that kind of like that, that transhumanist utopian aspect of it. I just saw the medical necessity of it. You know, I just saw I saw transhumanism. So like the things like the application of cybernetics or nanotechnology, uh, information technology, uh, all these kind of emerging and converging elements that this is just where this is where the future of medicine is going. Even things like uh, the prospect of radical life extension, you know, uh, is that a transhumanist fantasy? Or is that just, again, the logical progression of the medical sciences? So and I also looked at it from a very practical standpoint as a result. So uh, as, as my colleague James Hughes liked to say, it's arguing against transhumanism in some ways, like arguing against the plow. Like it's, it's going to happen. Like, so for me, wanting to get involved in this community was so that I could at least have a sense of some kind of, con- not, 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 not like control over it, but uh, just to be involved in the conversation and to get the conversation started. So back in like 2002, 2003, that, that time uh, back then, to describe things like radical life extension and cyborgs and you know neural links and mind-to-mind communication and uh, even nanobots to a certain degree and all the all the things that either are are now kind of in our midst or will soon be in our midst with very radical thinking and very fringe thinking for sure. And uh, for me, one of the moment of reckonings was a cover of Time Magazine where I think it sh- if I remember correctly, it showed like it had the years like t- you know 2040 on the cover with a with a with a head with like a brain jack sticking out of it. I'm like oh yeah, these ideas are now not just fringe anymore, like talk about like mainstream, you know, uh, incursions of the, of these, of these, um, of this kind of thinking. So, yeah. So, uh, back then, like again, early aughts, I excited by these ideas and wanting to become more involved in them. Uh, I co-founded the Toronto Transhumanist Association, which was a, uh, like a subsidiary of the World Transhumanist Association, which back then had, uh, it was a very vibrant group. We were very excited and eager uh, young individuals, for the most part, um, you know, there was a there was a chapter in in Chicago, for example, in California, New York, and we held conferences, and uh, it was very exciting. Then uh, I think it was around 2006. I was also involved in the founding of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, which is a U.S.-based think tank uh, where we describe exactly that: the ethics of emerging technologies. And I'm still involved in that group. That group is still active. Uh, by the way, the World Transhumanist Association, as many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware, is now Humanity Plus, so it's still around as well, just in a different uh, format. 
And um, then I, I also, at this time, uh, I think, I guess, amongst the first generation of bloggers, I had a blog uh, called Sentient Developments. And uh, just getting all my, basically, it was like a sounding board for all these ideas and thinking these things through because the ethics of it all really interested interested me. Both the ethics of, you know, should we do things, but, you know, uh, or should we not do things? And, you know, what, what were the, uh, you know, what are some of the potential outcomes of some of these technologies? So I was very interested in that. And even some of the more, you know, uh, deep futuristic aspects like uploading and, you know, living in virtual reality environments. I was also happy to speculate about that. And then uh, around, I think it was 2012. In 2012, Annalie Newitz, the editor-in-chief of io9.com, tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, do you want to write for us? And I said, absolutely. So I, I wrote for io9 until um, I was moved from there to Gizmodo, which is a sister site. Uh, and that's where I currently write. So if your uh, listeners are interested in um, uh, more of what I have to say, they, they're welcome to uh, to subscribe to uh, whatever feed or uh, hit the homepage at Gizmodo where I do write about um, I still, you know, I still definitely, I've got a, a definitely more diverse uh, beat now. I, in addition to these topics, I'm more than ever, I'm interested in artificial intelligence, both in terms of some of the breakthroughs that are, uh, you know, that are coming on a regular basis, but absolutely when it comes to the, uh, the social effects and the, uh, uh, even uh, the risks uh, involved and in the ways in which AI is starting to hurt us and set us back perhaps in ways that, uh, you know, are not, uh, you know, not to our liking. But other than that, I, I do a broad range of science, everything from archaeology, paleontology, through to, um, you know, chemistry, biology, uh, evolution, whatever. I mean, um, uh, whatever's timely and whatever is, I think, of interest to my readers, uh, I will hit. So that is, in an extreme nutshell, you know, is where, uh, you know, how I kind of uh, got to where I am today. So you basically do everything interesting about the past and the future. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, I'm the kind of guy that uh, if, uh, really, I mean, if, uh, you know, even at work uh, at Gizmodo, you know, I've got, I've got pretty, I've got a pretty, um, you know, uh, uh, a, a good degree of autonomy in what I can write about. And as I'm kind of scanning the fees and looking at, a, you know, embargoed articles and, uh, you know, wondering, um, you know, uh, what to hit next, ultimately, it's like, if it interests me, you know, that's pretty much where, uh, my, where I'm going to go. Like, uh, and, and if I think, of course, that it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's of importance to our, our readers, for sure. So you said AI, what's most interesting to you today and why? What's the most interesting thing today in, in AI? No, in anything. Is it AI? Is it something to else? To me personally, yeah. I mean, it's really captured my attention and imagination and my concern. It, we, I mean, we're seeing it evolve right before our very eyes, whether it be the prospect of autonomous vehicles, uh, the specter of uh, autonomous killing machines, and you know, these, these kind of weapons that we're told are going to be uh, on the immediate horizon. Uh, even on our, you know, even in our in our houses now, you know, when it comes to um, these personal assistants that we chat with now on a regular basis, because clearly there are some forms of artificial artificial intelligence imbued into those technologies. And you know, more than ever, I mean, I, 15 years ago, I was very concerned about where to, uh, AI would lead in terms of its catastrophic potential and even its existential potential. And those concerns have by have by no means been alleviated. And if anything, uh, they're even you know they're now you know as even a uh, you know, uh, protracted in terms of my worries. So I, as, a, as the deeper, deeper we go into the future, the more plausible, I believe, uh, are the concerns that uh, these technologies can hurt us in some uh, pretty profound way. So that's really captured my attention. I've been, uh, I get invited to speak uh, from time to time uh, uh, at events, and I also make an effort to go and, uh, you know, attend uh, various artificial intelligence seminars and symposiums. And uh, the, the discussions are starting to become, you know, extremely nuanced and, uh, and, and very serious in this area. 
Give me one example. In August, I uh, was at the, um, uh, there was a conference in Prague in the Czech Republic, uh, it went under the title um, human, I think it was called something along the lines like the human equivalent AI conference, which was basically an awkward way of saying um, uh, it's a conference about artificial general intelligence, AGI. And AGI is distinguished from other AI uh, is that it's it's kind of it's very human like in its in its in its faculties. So you take like a chess playing bot, or you take like a, an autonomous vehicle, or any of those those sorts of systems. They're really those are narrow or expert systems. They can only do really do one thing and do one thing. I mean, it can do it can do it very capably. But let's take uh, AlphaGo Zero for example, which is a uh, uh, it's a machine that can play uh, the the classic game board game Go. Uh, it, it it's now at superhuman levels in that particular in that particular game but you know it can't really do much other than well in fact it can't do anything other than play go uh an, an artificial general intelligence like human general intelligence can do a lot of different things i can have a conversation with you right now i can you know after this go downstairs and uh, uh, improvise dinner based on the ingredients i have in the refrigerator uh, and, and if i go outside and it starts to rain i know to put an umbrella over my head i mean these are the kind of like super adaptability just this kind of um, just generalized intelligence. And the, our, the, the conference in Prague was dedicated to this particular uh, possibility. When will we develop uh, artificial general intelligence? And you, had, you had people come up with a whole bunch of different types of predictions. You had some are like the super optimists, uh, many of them with kind of like are trying to you know, get you know, investment money or get, you know, try to maybe you know, get undue excitement about you know, their, their business plan or whatnot, their startup. We're saying, oh, yeah, it'll be, we'll have AGI in three to five years. Oh, well, I mean, it's a it's a Sure, if I was to give you know my probability curve, I'd say yeah, I would say it's it's not impossible. Uh, I would say it's highly improbable. My own my own feeling is that we will hit this uh, probably I don't know uh, twenty forty to fifty years from now. But uh, the reason why these predictions are so important and why we're kind of so fixated on the emergence of artificial general intelligence is because. The moment we have AGI, the moment we conceivably have a whole lot of other things, uh, namely a, a whole lot of other big problems on our hands. Because in AGI, then the next day after AGI, you now have, you know, ASI, artificial super, a, yeah, artificial super intelligence, because uh, conceivably this, this uh, system will be able to, uh, again, unless we somehow safeguard it, which is, that's a whole other issue altogether. It should be able to modify itself and do this kind of recursive self-improvement uh, uh, thing that we're so often told about. So within a matter of seconds, potentially, uh, after developing AGI, we could have artificial superintelligence on our hands, and and then then we're dealing with a technology that is beyond our our beyond our control, you know, beyond our uh, capabilities in terms of being able to understand it, uh, to keep up with its its speed, and of course to be able to kind of curtail its uh, its uh, its reach uh, in the universe. So. We better get this right as we're, uh, you know, going to uh, approach this, this seminal period in uh, our civilization's history. So, yeah, that, that's, that's why you can sit, I'm so interested in this. It's just probably one of the most pressing issues of our day. I find it childish and ignorant of people that say artificial intel general intelligence or artificial intelligence can be easily contained. We just have to bake in the parameters. I feel like if humanity has learned anything, it's that it's almost impossible to uh, expect the unexpectedly impossible. Yeah, they, when you're, yeah, yeah like, no, you're right. Uh, that's, that's what's called a containment issue, right? And uh, yeah, you've got all these people have these crazy ideas. Like science fiction has dealt with it. I think Frank Herbert in his in his novel, uh, a kind of more obscure novel, Destination Void, already sensed it back then that um, uh, we're gonna have to contain it somehow. So I remember the plot of the story correctly. He basically sent a ship, a ship, a spaceship off world, and you had these AI developers kind of like uh, build this machine in isolation and not even necessarily knew how to get back to Earth. 
And even more recently with uh, Ex Machina, you had it an allegorical form. I don't think that movie was meant to be taken too too seriously in terms of uh, how our, uh, ant- our antagonist, I guess, was working on his artificial uh, intelligence. But the idea there is that it was super isolated, right? Like he was out there, what was it, in Alaska, uh, remote setting, that there he could work in peace and then the AI could not, you know, um, uh, 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 you know breach the bounds of, of the setup they had, that he had made there. Well, spoiler alert, uh, the AI escapes at the end through... Uh, through strategies and through maneuverings that could not have possibly been predicted by the developer. It's not exactly how it's going to unfold, obviously, but the message of the movie is absolutely very well taken, that it'll, it'll sneak, sneak itself through our systems in some way, uh, because by definition, it is going to be you know, vastly smarter and more capable than us, and, it'll, and no matter the safeguards that we set up, it'll somehow ma- manage to filter through. And this, I mean, I mean, this might be our naive view of uh, the situation, and perhaps maybe in you know fifteen twenty years we'll develop these amazing safeguards, these kind of like firewalls, like from hell that no a no AI can ever be able to penetrate. But from our vantage point here in the year twenty eighteen, based on what I'm hearing from um, some very very knowledgeable people, uh, that's probably not not going to happen. Reminds me of the iPhone thing. You can't have a backdoor without having a backdoor for anyone. So if you want to interact with the system, you have to have a backdoor. And if you have a backdoor, it goes both ways. Yeah, you nailed it. That's, that's, that's kind of the problem kind of encapsulated is that there has to be some kind of level of interactivity. Otherwise, what's the point of having an artificial uh, intelligence you know, work for you? Uh, the other danger here is how are we going to get uh, international consensus uh, and it doesn't matter what you are, if you're uh, an NGO, if you're uh, a startup, if you're uh, like a well-established company like Facebook or Google, uh, or, or let's say, or a government uh, organization or a, or a military uh, organization, how could you pro- possibly get consensus from everyone to adhere to certain containment policies, even if you have, you know, stumbled upon a, 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 a you know, a coherent and effective co- a containment policy? Uh, somebody's going to screw up somewhere. Someone's going to unleash this thing into the digital ecosystem. And from there, it'll just set loose. And even by this particular point, whether it be five years from now or 50 years from now, obviously, with each passing year, our, the digital infrastructure is more and more intertwined. That web is getting thicker and thicker and it's reaching out towards more aspects of our lives. So with each passing year, the capability of AI to have greater reach in the world uh, is only is only increasing accordingly. So um, so yeah, it's uh, and it's not just containment in terms of having to garner uh, international consensus. It's also any standards that we start to um, enforce when it comes to the development of artificial intelligence. We're starting to feel this today. Uh, we're starting to have the first conversations about AI regulation now. Already though. Uh, and when I mean regulation, like anything has been regulated, like whatever industry it might be, uh, we already have regulated industries. The airline industry is regulated, for example, as are, as are other uh, important aspects of our lives. So the idea that AI can't be regulated or shouldn't be regulated, I think is kind of a facile uh, and reactionary view. Yet that voice is being promulgated. Let's take uh, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook. He has openly spoken against uh, the regulation of AI, saying it's premature, not necessary. And as it as as is so much so often the case in these corporate realms, the philosophy there is that we don't need government to put their their hands on this issue to constrain us. We got this. We as an industry will self regulate. We will make sure that we'll we'll take care of our own backyard. Which again, I find that laughable, especially I, I, from Zuckerberg. Especially from Zuckerberg, who um, uh, the problem with Zuckerberg as well, unlike 
other movers and shakers. Let's take Elon Musk just as an example. Uh, he doesn't really get the AI problem. Like when you li- when you actually listen to him and you actually kind of pay attention to what he's saying, I I, I feel it's way over his head yet, which is shocking to me because someone as you know as, as supposedly as bright as he is and as inquisitive as he is, and somebody who's so invested in in technology would would understand the implications. But maybe it's a classic case of an ostrich with its head with his head you know buried deep underground. Thankfully, we do have the likes of Elon Musk. Unfortunately, the uh, Stephen Hawking has passed away. He was a very great voice in this regard. Bill Gates. Bill Gates gets it. They listen to Bill Gates. He he understands the catastrophic and existential uh, potential for these and other technologies. So there are some voices that are super mainstream, but not, not just even mainstream, but super credible voices that people take seriously. Because you also have a lot of academics talking about this as well. But that the larger public. Uh, you know who cares what some you know nerd said you know at Oxford University, but you know when you have the the leaders of industry, for example, start to warn against these prospects, where they actually have we're actually telling that maybe our profit line, you know, uh, you know at the end of the day it needs to be maybe uh, uh, you know curtailed a little bit because we need to develop an entirely uh, new model of developing a safe system or to have regulations that say you can't do this, which really that really what we're saying with regulations is a combination of like you can't do this, you can't make a system do that. Or you must make a system do this, that, and the other thing. Or you have to follow these sorts of prescriptions to, 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 to developing it. Basically, sets of rules to make AI safe, accessible, unbiased. You know, to- Isn't that impossible, though? It's, it's a winner-take-all scenario with the tragedy of the commons. So it means if one yes. team can invent AI and th- AGI and theoretically break some of the rules, if they're going to win every game, it means it's like racing your car without brakes. I don't deny that this is going to be a, a, an immense problem of coordination and cooperation. Uh, uh, you know, absolutely. I think what, what, what we can do, though, is maybe compartmentalize it a little bit and break it down into small chunks. So, for example, when we say AI regulation, we don't mean anybody and everyone who's working on AI. That, that makes no sense. But let's say you're working on autonomous vehicles, for example. That's constrained enough such that we can now start to set, uh, set some guidelines for how they do what they do. So let's, let, let's take autonomous vehicles. Let's say we have a future Uber fleet or a future Lyft fleet and uh, completely autonomous, which is where they, these, these companies seem to be want to go. They don't seem to be interested in, in having drivers. So this means that you're going to have a fleet of autonomous vehicles that are you know, conceivably going to be controlled from a central computer or a central, you know, a central system. Now, imagine if uh, you know, somebody hacks into this system and they would actually now potentially have control over the entire fleet. They could now send them on kamikaze missions or to harm individuals or just to you know, behave in some squirrely ways. But undeniably, if we're talking about the, the, the control of thousands of vehicles or tens of thousands of vehicles, that you, have a, you now have some real you know, potential catastrophes in, in your midst. So I bring only this up as an example that there have to be some absolute rigid uh, standards for the security of this system, because we're talking about the the potential for harm on a mass scale is is significant. Um, I'm not not sure that's the best example, but I mean, let's take other other let's take um, personal assistance like Siri, Alexa, uh, Google Home, that sort of thing. Again, right now, completely Wild West. It's a joke. I can walk into your house. I can see that you have, let's say, let's say you have, just for the sake of argument, you have Amazon's uh, Echo. And let's say you've got it configured with your credit card and you've got your Amazon Prime account and all that. I can just walk into your house and I know, but all I have to do is say, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Alexa, order, you know, uh, 10 packages of diapers and uh, 20 cases of Coca-Cola. 
and uh, you know, del- and then deliver to to my house by tomorrow. Uh, that, that in other words, there's no security. It's just a bit of a joke. It can't be that way. Like security has to be, and we've you know people have been saying this for for decades now. Really, is security has to be uh, the first and foremost thing on your mind when you're developing any kind of uh, uh, of technology like this, and not an afterthought. So back to kind of your kind of your concern, which was like. How, how, how can regulations even be possible? Yeah, like I said, maybe break it down into small steps, s- small issues, you know, one prescription at a time and get, you know, as much agreement as you can on it and then see if it works. Obviously, if it doesn't work, if it's costing way too much money or if it's putting too many people out, then maybe let's kind of, you know, refine a little bit and, and find ways to make it work. But I don't believe that we should just throw our hands up in despair and say that uh, AI regulation uh, broken down to its subsets is an, is a, a, an intractable uh, problem. Who loves online training at their organization? Just about no one. It's a hassle to create and distribute and often tedious to take. And that's because you had to cobble it together. Authoring apps, learning management systems, and uneditable third-party content that looks like it's from the 90s. And none of these play nicely together. Enter Rise.com, the online training system employees love. Rise.com, sponsor for today's episode, is an all-in-one system that makes online training easy to create, enjoyable to take, and simple to manage. Not only can you create, distribute, and analyze online training easy in Rise.com, you can also get tons of training content that's beautiful and well-researched, enjoyable for learners, and awesome for everyone. And for the first time ever, you can edit, customize, and mix pre-built content with your own. If you're ready to disrupt the way your company trains employees, start your 30-day risk-free trial today at Rise.com disruptors. That's R-I-S-E dot com slash disruptors. D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. Perfect. And just in time for COVID when it's hard to see each other and online training is a must. Rise.com slash disruptors for more details and your 30-day risk-free trial. What about mutually assured destruction? We say, if we find out you're developing AI, we'll bomb your factory, we'll bomb your city, and we'll destroy it. Uh, is, is that is that plausibly the only way to do it? Are we talking like nation states? Like, let's say China. We're talking, let's say, well, I mean, let's say China does it. You blow China off the map. Let's say Singapore does it. Let's say it's a small team somewhere. You just blow up their factories. Like, is that? Yeah, I mean. That's, uh, kind of the cred- that's kind of the only credible way to do it. You're, the scenario you're proposing is, is, is kind of frightening because it suggests that it suggests a couple of things. It suggests that you'll have uh, competing uh, nation states working on their own uh, AI programs, which is not outlandish. It's probably happening as we speak. Oh, it's definitely happening. Yeah. Secondly, uh, it's presupposing that there won't be cooperation in regards to the safety concerns and restrictions and so on. Particularly, let's say we're talking about the militarization of AI, which is clearly it's going to happen, whether it be an AI that directs fleets of, uh, you know, autonomous uh, weapons or, you know, c- or controlling uh, uh, the nuclear arsenal, or let's say more of a more of a cyber, uh, more more like cyber attacks, which I think they're very, very as a very likely scenario, you know, taking down your enemies, uh, uh, you know, uh, power grids or other, you know, critical infrastructure, like, why wouldn't you develop that if you're kind of feeling belligerent enough or, or, if, or if even if you feel that you constantly need to stay a step ahead of your, your adversary, not necessarily that you're never going to deploy it, but just that we need to have it before they have it. And I, this, I believe, is kind of a mentality in the U.S., very much that uh, the idea that the U.S. would ever be behind militarily on something is kind of like a, it's an egregious idea. It's like, no, it's not acceptable. I think that's one of the reasons why DARPA is as innovative and as freewheeling as it is. I think, the, again, uh, the U.S. Uh, military does not enjoy that prospect. But back to your scenario, the third thing that would that kind of comes to mind is that there would be an, an acknowledgement by uh, the actors involved that 
a certain once a certain threshold is achieved that there is kind of like a point of no return where either they'll have to accept the fact that their adversary has this capability or deliver an ultimatum of sorts that they must cease and desist. Failure to do so would result in like an all-out nuclear exchange or some kind of all-out you know uh, reaction of some sort. Again, I, I hate to say this, but your your scenario is not terribly outlandish. And if I believe, I forget the name of the uh, the group that put this paper together, but they did say, this has already been predicted, that uh, the development of AI unto itself, not even AI in terms of what it could do, but the race to AI will exacerbate political tensions and, and make these geopolitical tensions even more... Uh, uh, more strenuous and maybe even lead to these kinds of uh, conflicts. So, uh, but that, like I said, it's gonna, that's going to require these kinds of conclusions, if you will, uh, in terms of the, of the threats, which I don't think is implausible. Yeah, it's tough. I haven't heard any good options other than we all talk about it and are friends and communicate well. And we've seen that that's problematic just with just with nukes well, and nukes can't spread unless we get our easily. unless we get our act together and do what we've been trying to do for hundreds of years which is set up a strong international uh, institution that can kind of help us manage these things you know after world war one for example there was the formation of the league of nations and that collapsed uh, because of world war ii but after world war ii we had uh, the united nations but even before the 20th century there were these ideas of you know global cooperative you know entities that uh, and it, it seems to happen after a terrible thing has happened like a like a world war for example so a world war happens or let's say the napoleonic era ends what do we do we get together we say okay well that was crazy that was insane we almost like th- th- we ravaged ourselves we've got to create institutions to prevent this from happening in the future and almost always that urge is toward this kind of more global cooperation like how do countries shake hands better how do we uh, like again during, after the napoleonic era for example they they agreed on uh, the regular kind of ha- um, uh, having these kinds of congresses and conferences where if there was a, some kind of like a political tension emerge you'd call a conference okay everybody just chill relax let's get together we'll have a conference i'll give you this if you give me that we'll ease this tension here you know, they were willing to uh, collaborate and willing to negotiate which is something that's completely lost now uh, and it's kind of like almost like today there's almost none no give and take when it comes to what's happening geopolitically and then of course after world war one the shock of world war one led to um uh, the league of nations and then like i said then the, then the united nations after world war ii so what i would hope that here's a i've not even a hope a concern that lead would lead to a positive outcome i've long predicted that we will experience some kind of an AI catastrophe, like a bad one. Uh, that's going to catch everybody by surprise. And I'm not sure what that, what form that will take, and may result in a lot of deaths. And that might be that kind of like, oh my god, moment. We need to create uh, an international uh, regime here that that where everyone is on board to prevent something, you know, even worse than that from happening in the future. As we've seen from, unfortunately, from history, uh, we're not very good at uh, sticking through with these things. We, maybe the first little while, we're like, oh yeah, we're totally into it. But then afterwards, maybe things fall apart and we get back to our old ways. So I'm not sure what the longevity of such a, of a, a regulatory regime might be. But uh, I'm just trying to kind of maybe play devil's advocate to your cynicism, uh, which is that maybe there could be circumstances emerge where we might find some kind of common ground at an international level to both discuss the prospect and do something about it to prevent it from escalating. It's almost just as cynical to say we need to have tragedy before we yes, can team up. Yes, it is. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's sad and it's part of it's also human nature. Yeah. I, I hope that we can start to evolve beyond that. You mentioned longevity a bit. Yeah. So tra- transhumanism, there's a lot of different ways that technology is going in terms of longevity, human health, extension, etc. Which are you most excited about? Uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, radical life extension, for sure. 
and it's very difficult to talk to anybody about that these days without getting some kind of, you know, uh, almost hysterical reaction in return. It's not an idea that is very generally uh, publicly accepted. It's you're considered selfish, first and foremost, grossly negligent in terms of what this might mean to the environment, what it might mean to overpopulation and, and uh, you know, the destruction and the taking in of too many resources and so on. But I think that, you know, uh, at the same time, this has to be taken, you know, uh, has to be considered, you know, along with other technologies and other developments that will happen, you know, in tandem with it. So, you know, in a, in a world where we've cured aging, let's be honest, in a world where we've, we've cured aging, I think we're going to be able to, to cure a lot of other of our, of our social and cultural and political ills. And that, you know, uh, I've never I've never been worried about overpopulation in terms of our elbow room. Like we actually have a small footprint as as physical individuals where our footprints get large is, you know, uh, everyone's demanding first world standards, you know, the meat obsessed culture, uh, the uh, you know, the uh, the the amount of energy we we uh, we require. But if we can find ways to kind of like squeeze all of these things down such that our footprint, you know, uh, shrinks likewise, then I just, there's no reason to believe, you know, I think there's no ethical, moral, religious, you know, reason to, you know, say that we, we shouldn't strive to, uh, you know, extend our lives to an indefinite degree. So, so that one definitely um, is exciting to me. I think death sucks. And I think that uh, the sooner we get rid of it, the better. The other, I mean, some other things, uh, I'm really super stoked about the possibility of more meaningful levels of communication between individuals and groups. So this kind of prospect of mind-to-mind communication and even the, the emergence of uh, so-called hive minds. So you're already starting to see the first uh, uh, inklings of this in uh, these neural interface devices and these computer-to-brain devices where uh, uh, you already have had teams, for example, uh, have had uh, this kind of uh, communi- thought-to-thought communication between individuals separated by hundreds of miles where uh, one person thinks the word, you know, hola, uh, and then uh, the, it's a kind of like a, it's not invasive techniques, but it, an EEG cap, you know, p- captures the signal, then that's tra- that signal is translated, sent over the internet to a, a transcranial uh, magnetic machine that then causes lights to flash in the person's eye such that they can like do this, more, do this Morse code thing and decipher the words. I, I only bring that up because it kind of sounds primitive and it, it really is, but it's kind of like the, the first stab at what's going to be perhaps something much, much more profound, which is more direct thought-to-thought uh, communication between individuals such that we will be this kind of technologically enabled telepathic species as a result. So we, and it seems to be in our nature to do this. It seems we seem to just, our technologies seem to be constantly about integration, communication, closer and closer, you know, links, to, you know, uh, between the nodes that are that are us, ourselves as human beings, and uh, it's it's kind of you know wonder to think like what kinds of activities, what kinds of organ self you know organizations will we have you know in a world where we are we're connected at a much uh, more intimate and uh, at a greater level. So yeah, those are the two things I would say that um, that excite me the most. I'd say what technology specifically for life extension are you most excited about, and how long do you think you'll make it? Yeah, so. Uh, there used to be this kind of idea that, you know, life extension would be that there'd be a magic pill that you take and it's going to, you know, you live forever. It's absolutely not going to uh, take that form. The way I see it unfolding, it's just, it's just going to be this piecemeal, incremental, you know, a set of steps that will just lead to, to us kind of really at one point, we're just going to stop and look at each other and going, we'll ask ourselves, have we kind of like cured aging? Because, you know, a lot of people are not dying anymore. In other words, it's not going to be like a eureka moment where we have it. 
So it can be uh, it can be anything from the replace. We're, we're going to have suddenly we're going to, for example, be able to replace every organ in the body through you know with synthet- either sy- through just a synthetic you know replacement or through let's say regenerative medicines and or any other thing that can you know, keep the the tissues that are in our bodies going or or whether it be a breakthrough like in terms of you know mit- mitochondrial repair. Or you know, figuring out you know uh, the cellular the cellular rep- replication problem and, and and harnessing all the different cancers that you know uh, that ravage us. But even then, for example, what we don't we don't even know what we don't know. So we don't know, for example, even if we have all these things figured out, maybe at the age of at the average age of 175, for example, there's a new disease that happens because we we all are, are all of our body parts don't age at this at the same rate. So all the various let's say physiological functions don't age at the same at the same rate. Uh, so there might be something we don't know that, like I said, at, at this hypothetical age of 175 starts to break down and causes death. Uh, so we'll have to find a cure, quote unquote, to that. In other words, like we may have people live until, you know, past 120, 140, 160, but then they pass away. But then one can maybe make a case that that's not even going to happen. Uh, Kurzweil and others have argued about so-called uh, like bridge uh, therapies where that if you, so for example, if, you, if let's take today, for example, like if, if okay, uh, I was born in 1970. So let's say I live to be 100 years old in the year 2070. Oh my God, like 27. And let's say I managed to get, maybe let's say medical technologies are such that I can live till 2080, 2090. I mean, by that point, uh, medical tech should probably be sufficiently advanced that I, I probably will be, you know, a de facto, you know, immortal by that point. So that, that's another kind of, lo- of line of thinking is the bridge approach, where it's just going to be this constant succession of interventions that are just going to let you live to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage, such that you're just going to just keep on living indefinitely. And then, of course, there's there's even the prospect that I think is directly related to radical life extension, which is, I guess, the kind of like the escaping of our corporeal uh, forms altogether, uh, rejecting biological analog existence and leaping right into the digital realm, which I have my doubts about in terms of that whole continuity of consciousness problem. Uh, a lot of the schemes that I've seen, um, whether it be like, you know, different brain scanning schemes, seem to imply a kind of destructive copying where there is, yeah, absolutely you've created this entity that's that's living a digital life in a virtual reality environment that's got your memories, got your personalities, and is absolutely firmly convinced that he or she is you, but it's just a copy that it was just that person was literally just born the moment that the that the emula that the emulation was uh, was started. And you, unfortunately, are as dead as a doorknob. Your your consciousness has come to a grinding halt. I think this is a profound problem in both philosophy and in the neurosciences. And uh, until I, I have, I think I've really yet to to read a, a plausible brain scanning plan that can guarantee my continuity of consciousness from one substrate to the next substrate. But that might be just my lack of uh, uh, education or understanding of, of the issue. Perhaps maybe hybrid systems can exist where we we kind of have uh, still retain certain organic elements. Some scientists on the fringe have argued that there are certain aspects of consciousness that may have a, a, a relation to the to uh, to quantum phenomena. Uh, and even if they're wrong, there are other similar thoughts that suggest consciousness is somehow rooted in other, uh, I guess, uh, uh, like uh, cosmological phenomena that can't be replicated by streams of ones and zeros or any kind of, you know, uh, digital paradigm for that matter. And, and that, that may be the case, but that's not, I, I feel, a deal breaker when it comes to uh, uploading. Because the way I look at it is the fact of the matter is this thing in my skull, it is performing those necessary functions. I am conscious. I know that. That I know for sure. You know, that's one thing Descartes uh, was uh, 
also very sure of. Uh, I do know for sure that I am conscious, so therefore my brain must be capable of this capacity that is consciousness. Yet this this remarkable thing in my in my in my head arose through these processes of natural selection. It is made of the stuff that exists in this universe. There's nothing magical, mystical, uh, unknowable about it. Yeah, it might take us a long time to, to to figure it out, but ultimately, whatever machinations are going on in there, whatever you know, phenomenology is required to kind of make that happen, we will figure it out. As to how that's translatable to uploading and computers, we'll have to figure it out. But ultimately, what I'm trying to say, maybe not saying so well, is we will be able to create a model of it. We won't know if the model is right, though. That's the big problem. What we have to do, therefore, and I've argued about this, is we have to pinpoint the the, neural, the so-called neural correlates of consciousness. We need to have a test for consciousness. So in other words, I, we need more than just your word for it. We've, and and, and I've, argued, I've, I've kind of belabored this point for a long time. We need to actually develop a, a scientific test, some kind of a, some kind of a measurement that I can't. We can just wave it over your head or whatever it might be, and it's going to like it's going to go. Yeah, there I, consciousness is happening there, irrespective of what this person or animal or whatever is is, is claiming or, or telling me. So. I would dare say I, I I personally will not upload myself or do any kind of brain scanning thing until we've de- we've developed this measurement device for consciousness. When I hear people talk about brain uploading, I think the same thing when I hear people talking about containing AI. It just seems so childish to assume that we'll be able to understand how the brain to such a significant degree that you would be willing to jump off a cliff. And I mean, it seems the same thing as it seems the same thing as praying to a God and believing in heaven. You have no proof that it's going to happen and no one's able to verify for you regardless of what happens. I think, I mean, if you want to get into a semi-uploaded consciousness, what about just putting people under in terms of cryogenically or in some sort of anesthetically, keeping people under and having them in VR? I think that has a lot more potential or just hooking their brain into interfaces so they are playing in VR and you slow aging down. The The concept of creating an analog of your brain First of all, a lot of the stuff in your body affects your brain. Your brain is uh, your brain is what puts together the senses. But I mean, a lot of your hormones come from your stomach. A lot of different yeah. things come from different areas. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what I was alluding to earlier when I referred to hybrid systems that uh, f- plausible, meaningful uh, upload paradigms may actually require these kind of like these kind of like dual entity modules to them, like a hybrid system. So when, like I said, when we create the so-called model of the human brain, it, it may actually to retain some biological some or what we would con- con- what would consider to be intrinsically biological components that then could be let's say connected to something absolutely digital but they have to work together to kind of create that system like you're you're in your your I love I like your example which is like somebody that's in a coma let's say where you still have these these biological components hooked up to a machine I'm thinking something like that but imagine like a super futuristic version of that uh, where who knows what that model of your brain might actually be and how it might actually exist in in the real world but again I just bring it Bringing this up to show that it's not a completely implausible example. And just further to your point about cryonics, I know that um, a number of, uh, of uh, prospective cryonicists, their thinking is that uh, they would rather do the, um, the whole brain, sorry, they would rather do the whole body preservations rather than just head only, uh, only because they feel that when they want to be revived, they want to be revived as kind of like flesh and blood human beings again, maybe with some cybernetic aspects or whatever. Uh, and that the thought that their brain might, uh, if they do head only, that there's the fear that uh, it'll be this kind of destructive copying and uh, uh, re-emulating of, 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 the, um, of themselves in a way that uh, does kind of create this kind of continuity of consciousness. So uh, uh, I guess I'm bringing this up only because cryonics does present a possible 
let's say, bridge from death to uh, renewed life or reanimation in which you can kind of perhaps guarantee uh, a continuity of consciousness, similar to like when you wake up or you've, you've been in a coma uh, or if you've had a, you've been put under anesthesia and where consciousness has literally been shut down, uh, that when you wake up, you are still arguably you, at least you think you're you. Yeah, you pause the movie, go to the bathroom, and then you come yeah. back. Yeah. So, the the blog is Sentient Thoughts. And my curi- uh, my question is, uh, on the con- on the concept of consciousness, sentience, especially with robots, do you think we'll get to that point where so, we'll A, be able to tell or B, they will be conscious? Yeah, right? yeah. Like in Ex Machina, yes. you brought up that and you can't actually tell. And I think that's a big part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, just a quick correction, it's sentient developments, but not that it really matters because I haven't been... Um, uh, oh, sorry, you're talking about sentient... Not the blog, you're talking literally about sentient thoughts. I was, thinking, I was talking about yeah. the blog, but got the name wrong. Okay, all good. But you're, yes, that is something I think about a lot, uh, the idea of conscious robots. And, uh, and it's even given rise to uh, some other uh, you know, pet projects of mine. So, for example, uh, at the IEET, I've set up the, uh, the Rights of the Non-Human Persons Program. And the reason why I set it, set it up, like right now in its current form, it's, it's, it's mostly looking out for the interests of non-human animals that we deem to be highly sapient, very intelligent, highly, you know, very emotional. Uh, animals that uh, are, are arguably deserving of what I'd call uh, personhood uh, status. But the reason for even setting this up was because I was concerned about uh, the same thing for future robots. And future robots may actually have, they may be imbued with consciousness as well. It would be artificial consciousness. Again, uh, not to repeat what, we, what we've just been talking about, but it's still an open question as to whether or not we can create artificial consciousness or whether we have to create it uh, by some uh, some other means such that it's kind of like not so much artificial consciousness as it's more like a uh, a, re-envi- a re-envisioning of how the human brain uh, produces uh, uh, conscious awareness. But further to your question, so yes, I uh, I think that um, I mean this is a, this is a huge topic because it, it could send me in any number of of of, uh, of directions. But just very very quickly, if you start to have robots, if we start to have robots in our midst that uh, exhibit human level intelligence and capabilities and even a certain you know uh, emotional sp- uh, spectrum and that we can detect consciousness like i said because if we're going to uh, in my future world we're going to have a, this, this this amazing device this consciousness measurement wand we'll call it and then once we can confirm that uh, that uh, all these things are resident within a, a within an, a, a robot then yeah then now we have now we have some real uh, moral considerations to, uh, to to deal with both in terms of their personhood what kinds of rights uh, do they do they have and what kinds of privileges uh, are they afforded in our society? But before we get, I know you're dying to say something, but before we get there, uh, please don't don't forget your question. My concern, though, is more proximate to that. And my concern there is the steps that are going to lead up to this development, the kinds of work that artificial intelligence researchers will be performing in their uh, laboratories. Uh, you know, uh, you know, as they maybe it could it could be through the you know could be through experimenting on animals. It could just be through hard coding. But the idea that eventually uh, we'll create the spark that is uh, consciousness, or maybe if I could be maybe more granular about it, uh, an, a, a, a digital agent, let's say, a piece of software that now has the capacity for subjective awareness and now is aware of itself in the sense of sentience. It has other uh, capacities for subjective awareness, such as feeling pain, pleasure, and maybe even some emotions like fear or happiness. You can imagine the ethical conundrums that this represents in a, in, a, in a kind of like in a basic laboratory setting, the kind of harm that could be done to a creature. I mean, just I almost pick any like, I mean, 
the Black Mirror has kind of addressed some of these nightmarish scenarios where you have these uploaded uh, uh, minds, you know, where we screw around with their clock speed. And we can torture them, you know, by, by, you know, slowing down their clock speed relative to our clock speed. So imagine an experiment. It may not even be the intention of the investigator, but what they thought was maybe a five second experiment subjectively to that, uh, to the subject being experimented upon might've been, you know, almost an eternity of suffering. So that's the kind of stuff we have to be super conscious of, super, you know, uh, concerned about. And uh, it's, I don't think it's going to be ever too early to talk about, uh, to talk about that. And when society runs on robotic work, what happens when we realize we've created a class of slaves? Does the economy crash? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think you're addressing there a, a very different problem, which is the, the whole issue of technological unemployment. I think that the, 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 the I think we are we are headed toward a, a very different economy. There's no question about it. The autonomous. Uh, I mean, we're heading toward what they call a third industrial, uh, third or fourth industrial revolution. I've even lost track now. It's apparently which industrial revolution we're heading into. But the automation there will both be robotic in terms of uh, the labor that will be displaced, uh, whether you're a factory worker or a bus driver or you know whatever. And that we see the writing on the wall of those of those jobs already. But we're also hearing, of course, white collar work uh, will be displaced as well by artificial intelligence, and we're starting to feel the first pangs of that. And they're they're projecting that uh, by around 2025, we're going to start to see some uh, massive displacement as a result of uh, of these systems. And because the fact of the matter is, companies are they will use these systems so if it means they don't have to hire somebody and train somebody and offer them employment, you know, all the benefits of employment and and all that uh, minimum wage, uh, you know, whatever might whatever you know if, if companies can have. Uh, can, can curtail those costs, they will. And uh, I'm not, uh, I can't predict how society will, uh, the effects of that will be on society or how we will deal with it. Obviously, we have dealt with, you know, economic catastrophes in the past. Look at uh, how uh, Roosevelt dealt, for example, with the Great Depression. We've never been the same since. Similarly, uh, this could result in a kind of another uh, paradigm shift in terms of our social and economic organization, such that we can continue to uh, to live and thrive and engage in that so called pursuit of happiness. So uh, I'm not I'm not pessimistic though that it'll result in like uh, you know mass torment, and civil war, and you know, social strife. I just think it's just gonna. I think it'll it'll just result in a new kind of social organization. I think it's a little bit of a moot point though. So either either robots take the majority of jobs, or you, robots create so many more jobs that everyone's employed. But at least. For a long time, no one's going to be paying robots. But what happens if suddenly one day we realize they're all conscious and half the half the society, whether it's half the workforce or all the right. workforce, but is run by slaves? If if a, if a robot is suddenly conscious, it's because we deliberately made it conscious. Our, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, its ability to do work is is not tied to its ability to, to experience subjective awareness. So we're not going to create like factory bots or even you know accountant bots or lawyer bots uh, that are conscious. They're just going to do that work uh, that they're that they're programmed to do. Uh, we're, so the population of of con- like fully conscious conscious robots will be, I think, uh, of an of an extreme minority. Unless we deliberately decide to do that, or they themselves decide to do that, then we then we most certainly will have uh, something very important to have to deal with in terms of uh, uh, sociological and civil considerations. Hey guys, hope you loved our interview with George Dvorsky. I know I found it fascinating. He's a really interesting guy, and a lot of the stuff we talked about is truly transformational. 
Unfortunately, the audio we had at the end cut out, so we decided to cut the interview here. You guys can find George at Dvorsky on Twitter. That's D-V-O-R-S-K-Y. And of course, you can find links and everything to learn a little bit more about George, to check out his blog and look into the writings he does for Gizmodo. You can find all that, of course, at disruptors.fm. And again, George is at Dvorsky on Twitter. Hope you guys have enjoyed this. Sorry about the short cutoff, but sometimes it happens. And this interview was, I think it was a top-notch interview. It was a top-notch conversation, especially for me. And I figured you guys would want to hear it, even if we lost the last little bit. Hope you guys enjoy. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us, and if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message, and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.